This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in French Studies, a channel in the New Books Network. Uh, my name is Salvador Lopez Rivera, and today I will be speaking with um, Professor Bernard Dionysius Gegen about his book, uh, Code from Information Theory to French Theory, which uh, came out uh, through Duke University Press uh, in January in 2023. Uh, Dr. Gegen is a media theorist and historian of science at King's College London. and um, well, um, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining me. Um, thank you. Uh, it's it's an honor to be here, Salvador. Thank you. Um, so I just wanted to start with a very um, broad question. So just uh, where did the idea for this uh, book project come from, you know, to like interrogate some of the approaches that like are familiar to a lot of us, um, such as cybernetics and structuralism. So I was just wondering where the um, initial idea came from. So um, the, the 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 origins of the book came uh, partly from just uh, kind of wide nomadic reading practices. Um, like a lot of uh, like a lot of people went to liberal arts college in the nineties. Uh, as an undergrad, I had read a fair amount of French theory and semiotics, people like Roland Barthes and Jacques Derrida. And then when I was in uh, graduate school at uh, Northwestern University, um, I was both taking classes in communication studies and in media studies, even in German, while also hanging out with computer science people. And I started to notice certain terminologies that circulated across all of these different specialties, um, references to code, references to feedback, um, a certain kind of communicative language of texts from the 60s and 70s that connected all these disciplines. So I became just curious about how this shared discourse of informatic thinking took shape in diverse social and human and even technical sciences. And eventually I wrote a, a book on it. Oh, okay. Thank you. Um, so there was definitely a common thread uh, across disciplines that um, made you notice, right? Uh, yes. There might be something there. Um, yes, absolutely. And then also um, in media studies, a lot of the, I mean, a lot of the thinkers I was interested in as a PhD student, um, people like Bernard Stiegler or Bruno Latour, um, I don't really write about them in my book, but one could see these kind of recurrent, they were sometimes interested in highly technical 
kind of network-oriented ways of thinking about the way culture works. And you could tell something was happening here that although it was sometimes, uh, it, it might it might in a given moment be couched in the language of French or German philosophy, at some point there had been some profound enduring encounter between philosophical and social ideas of thinking about media and communications and more technical traditions. Um, and so bit by bit, uh, I just read more deeply and widely. I went into archives and I, bit by bit, I found that um, there was this moment between the 30s and 60s where there were a lot of programs linking engineers, mathematicians, semioticians in conversation and dialogue. And um, yeah, as I said, it seemed like something I could... Um, flesh out into a larger story of 20th century theory. Um, yes, it's. I think it's fascinating how there's, um, you know, like the material conditions of how the theories produce um, lead towards this uh, structuralism and cybernetics. And that's actually related to the second question I was going to ask you, because uh, one of the main ideas uh, that I read in the book was that um, structuralism, cybernetics, um, the specific theories were used to legitimize the humanities in the context of academia, right? So like um, it was seen that like by using these approaches, uh, the humanities were more valid or they were like finding a more like empirical way uh, of describing what they were doing. So I was wondering if you could um, elaborate on that issue of like uh, legitimizing uh uh, disciplines through um, structuralism and cybernetics. Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, so there is, uh, yeah, there's absolutely one of the things I one of the things I discovered is that for a very long time, I'd even go so far as to say for a century, going back to the 20s and 30s, in the wake of the progressive era in the United States, in the wake of new forms of technocracy. Um, there was this drive to make the social sciences and the humanities authoritative forms of expert knowledge that could confront the problems of a modern technical culture, the problems of industrial democracy. Um, and then alongside of that, um, so, you know, I read, the, I read the history of how starting in the 20s and 30s in fields like anthropology, there's kind of a technical and communicative turn and technocratic uh, thread running through the, the social sciences, the humanities. Alongside of that, um, you know, the kind of shadow story that I didn't had no idea would be in the book if I ended up being quite decisive, um, crises like um, World War One, World War Two, the fallout from colonialism, decolonization, the Holocaust, uh, really shook the faith and foundations in notions like social sciences and humanities, right? Because whatever it was that we thought was so social and human about humans, uh, it was it was hard to it was hard to have the same confidence in these ideas uh, after confronting the terrible violence of the world wars and of colonialism, which made a lot of this a lot of the scientists I study, uh, a lot of the social scientists, people like Margaret Mead, Gregory Bateson, Cloud Levy Strauss, the structuralist, Roman Jacobson, the structuralist, it made them much more willing to say, okay, let's look at new forms of technical and engineering expertise. What does it mean if we think of um, trade or language or storytelling 
as sort of not humanist practices per se, but structural systemic practices that don't necessarily rest merely on the human mind or the human conscience, but rather something more impersonal. Um, they knew that this was a, they knew that this was a, in some ways a, a kind of far-fetched idea. Uh, they knew that it was taking a lot of leaps, but, you know, by the end of the 40s, by the early 1950s, there was this acutely felt need for new models of what it meant to be human. And so uh, ideas coming out of computing, digital media, cybernetics, um, they seemed to all be sort of promising ways of responding to these crises, possibly allowing social science and the humanities to develop a new form of expertise that could think critically about culture without falling into kind of classically Eurocentric uh, humanist tropes. And so bit by bit, um, really across the disciplines in the 50s and 60s, you see these elements of engineering, digital and cybernetic thought taking hold as a way of repositioning social scientists and and, uh, humanities scholars as experts of doing a sort of end run around what seems to be a no longer satisfying humanist or existential um, philosophy. And, um, you know, maybe coming up with a new type of knowledge that would succeed where up until then, obviously, traditional politics, traditional humanities and social scientific knowledge had not uh, kept war at bay, had not kept vast human destruction at bay. Um, so there was this hope that a new kind of technical theory-driven research might uh, might bear some type of fruit, really, for, for preventing the, the destruction of humankind. That's, that's how these experts thought about the turn towards fields like cybernetics and computing. Um, thank you. Yeah, I can definitely see how the um, this more like um, numerical scientific approach came to um, rabbit revitalize these fields. Um, and I find something interesting in your book is the idea that we have to question the idea of interdisciplinarity, maybe. Um, I always think that like humanities and the sciences have a lot to teach uh, to each other, to learn from each other. And I feel like nowadays, um, when you're applying for a job in academia, um, they always require you to um, do some sort of interdisciplinary research. But I think in your book, you approach this like collaboration from another angle, like seeing maybe um, some of the nuances of that. Um, I was wondering uh, what your opinion was about this like interdisciplinary that was kind of fostered by this um, cybernetics and structuralist approach to the humanities and social sciences. So, um, you know, a certain like a, a basic concept of, of the book, which is certainly in no ways unique is um, when you have like, when you have bold new intellectual or academic formations, they're frequently in response to some type of crisis an acutely felt crisis. Um, so, you know, we, we talk, we, you know, we can kind of talk about interdisciplinarity in a kind of uh, very, um, I don't know. Um in a, I don't know how to describe it. We can talk about it as if it's just people getting together and sharing ideas and reimagining their methods and so forth. But usually part of the argument of the book is there's larger uh, structural transformations 
oftentimes planetary political events that make people say our existing knowledge forms are not adequate. Let's mix them up and bring them together in new ways. Um, and so out of that, what this also means is that transformation in the world of ideas is, is um, has an aspect to it that is almost by definition has to be strategic. We don't just mix things together, but things come together to respond to specific problems. So, you know, interdisciplinarity, in a way, it's a it's like a surface description of what I see as more tectonic shifts in intellectual and political and social life. And so on that basis, um, you know, I'm sort of trying to do a couple of things at once. Um, you know, I'm spending a lot of attention to how do things like war or exile or, you know, um, sort of so-called third-party philanthropic funding for interdisciplinary collaboration try to respond to crises. And by crises, it could mean inequality in the United States, or it could mean the threat of communism, or it could mean a sense that colonial, um, you know, the colonies are somehow, um, they're, they, you know, they need new forms of management. And, in response to those crises, you know, what I see in my book over and over again is tremendously heroic, admirable scholars, these people like Mead or Bateson or Levi Strauss or Jakobson, making these big intellectual leaps that really transform the 20th, 20th century universities, transform interdis- international scientific norms and practices, but are, you know, also deeply shaped and constrained by the problems and challenges they have to meet, uh, the problems and challenges to which they have to respond. Um, so the, the this ascent of, for example, informatic language in the human sciences, part of it is about, in a moment when in the United States, there's a great fear of you know, left-wing Marxist inquiry. There's a lot of political work you can do if you use a systems theoretical or informatic language and you say that can solve problems. Um, this kind of technical expertise, while it sort of empowers uh, social scientists to be part of major debates in 1950s and 1960s France and the United States, in some sense, it moves them into these highly technical discourses that in some ways discourage broader public participation because it's, um, you know, it's uh, to participate in the conversation, you have to be in some ex- to some extent invested in these special interdisciplinary scientific languages that have their, you know, moorings and anchoring in, you know, research at MIT and, you know, AT&T Bell Labs. Um, So, you know, there's a way of saying, like, let's critically assess why and how these theoretical models and forms took shape. Um, And within that, I also think there's a lot of room to really appreciate and celebrate the innovations, the insights, um, the, the kind of unexpected, uh, um, I don't know, uh, transformations in thought that come out of them, while also saying, okay, that was the way they formed those questions in response, for example, to, in France to decolonization in the 50s and 60s. How do these languages and discourses, how could they be adapted today? Or in what ways are new fields like the digital humanities responding to new crises? Um, so uh, in, in a way, it's a sense of moving beyond just a notion of progressive scientific reform or beyond a notion of disciplines coming together, you know, 
which these are all kind of linear processes towards a kind of more nonlinear history of the shifting crises that transform academic discourse so that we can think critically about what are the crises and language that we find ourselves embedded in today. Um, thank you. Um, and I wanted to go back to the uh, idea of responding to crisis um, for my next um item slash question, uh, I had uh, written about the idea that theory, um, cybernetics and structuralism, that is, was seen kind of like as an apolitical, like technical way of measuring things, right? And then like behind all of that um, was the colonial uh, background and also the um, mental institutions background. So you have uh, Margaret Mead and Gregory Bateson going into colonial Indonesia, um, to obtain, like, uh, to test out these methods that later they're going to use other anthropologists in, like, suburbia, for example. Um, it reminded me a lot. Um, I taught a course on uh, women's gender and sexuality studies. And so my students and I discussed how uh, to come up with the birth control pill. There were a lot of trials with, like, women in Puerto Rico, for example. So how these things that are seen as, like, uh, innovative have, like, a background that people are not aware about. Um, so I was just um, curious about that whole like idea of um, cybernetics and structuralism as something that is apolitical, perceived as apolitical, but it's really not. So the, uh, so yeah, these are things I'm really, I'm, I'm deeply interested in the extent to which um Methods like cybernetics, so to say, sciences of communication and feedback that are loosely indexed to computing or structuralism, the study of, it could be language or cultural practices in terms of kind of differential structural relations that have some consistency across space and time. So I'm interested in how these kind of formalist systems oriented uh, thinking can, in some cases, mask political problems because they kind of present political problems almost as formal problems. Um, So just within that, so I'm, as you, as you mentioned, I've been really fascinated by these prehistories of cybernetics or early histories of cybernetics that unfold in colonies, asylums, and so on. But also because this is a kind of way of telling a different political history than we've traditionally gotten of cybernetics. So there's a there's a long history of cybernetics, media and technology and scientific innovation that lays emphasis on war between nation states as the place where you get kind of new technological systems, right? So uh, and all of that is work that you know to which I'm I'm you know deeply uh, in, indebted. People like um, Peter Gallison or Donna Haraway or Paul Edwards and a lot of others have written about the World War II roots of cybernetics. Um, but in a way, I, it did seem to me that way of te- that way of telling the political story leaves a lot out because it sort of presents politics in this very radical form of major Western nation states coming to conflict and fighting according to what goes on in laboratories. There has been for a long time, these other kind of histories of cybernetics by people like Jennifer S. Light, uh, Fred Turner, Andrew Pickering, that explore like, okay, how did 
early ideas of cybernetics, computing, and informatics become find their testing grounds in places like uh, the reform of uh, urban, so-called urban renewal in 1950s and 1960s America, or in kind of hippie counterculture. And they were saying there were these other places with a more peculiar relationship to politics that became important for these new technical ideas. And so out of that, um, those stories oftentimes focus on the 50s and 60s. And I want to say, oh, well, actually, there are all these other cases of people connected to cybernetics, like Margaret Mead, like Gregory Bateson, like Claude Levi-Strauss, who spent decades in connection with either research in and at colonies, uh, studies of um, psychiatry and abnormal pathology, and maybe these two are places where you have some type of conflict playing out, some type of, you know, confrontation between the state and populations that's not the same as World War II nation states, but also should be written in the history of how it is that violence and conflict creates technical and scientific and political transformation. Um, and so within that, um, you know, I write a lot in the book, of course, about Mead and Bateson in Dutch Bali in the 1930s, um, uh, Bateson's work in colonies, and then also how and why the uptake of cybernetics in, say, post-war France was frequently indexed or referenced to thinking about, you know, French thinkers from Foucault to Lévi-Strauss to Lacan, thinking about problems like decolonization, thinking about problems like reforming the asylums, um, and within that, uh, you know, there's a kind of different political history that is not, it's not the first time we said cybernetics is political, but it starts putting a new group of people and places uh, and, you know, human subjects with, you know, at the center of how thinking about computing or technology or systems uh, take shape. Does, does that kind of make sense? Uh, yes, yes. Um, I think I'm really interested in the way you add to the history of cybernetics beyond, you know, like um, Western nation states uh, battling each other. Um, in fact, I wanted to bring up the um, when it comes to the history of cybernetics, the role of U.S. Uh, Robert Barron philanthropy. Um, I thought that was one of the most fascinating aspects of the book because I didn't think much about the role of like philanthropists in shaping knowledge, right? You think they just give out the money and it's just charity, but then there's all sorts of like political motivations behind that. Um, and in the U.S., um, philanthropy plays a big role in higher education. Uh, I think you mentioned at some point that like uh, there's a difference, right, between the French uh, state-funded research versus the U.S., um, a more philanthropic model, maybe. So I was wondering about the um, Robert Byron philanthropy um, role that you bring up uh, early in the book. So um, the first thing I would do is just kind of to like step back for a second and just talk about, you know, this this title from information theory to French theory. In principle, it's a kind of reference between information theory being allegedly developed in the United States and French theory being supposedly developed in France. Um, but, you know, the book is written as a comparative history in which both France and the United States play a decisive role uh, in thinking about new ideas of information. One of the things about that comparative perspective is even though cybernetics doesn't get big until the 50s and 60s in France, 
Um, one starts, part of the way you can make sense of it is it's the way it circulates in France is totally different than the way it circulates in the United States and the sponsors, the institutions and so on. And so in a way, once you look at what's happening in France in the 50s and 60s, you and the way it belongs to a proliferation of modernizing laboratories attached to French state universities, then you can look back at what's happening in the United States as far back as the 20s and 30s and starts, you know, of course, and it continues until after the war, you start saying, oh, like, these are totally different systems for organizing knowledge, and they prioritize different goals. And the way where they, they use cybernetics in totally different ways partially reflects the values of their educational systems. And bit by bit, out of that... You know, it was actually only after looking at the French a whole lot where I was like, oh, okay, in, in the United States, much of the development of efforts to develop communication science, communication theory, new technologies and computing, in the first instance, a lot of it was funded by, you know, uh, so-called robber barons, scientific philanthropies, these giant organizations that were funded by, you know, what at the time, you know, in, in today's terms would have been major, 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 you know, billionaires of, of oil and the railroads um, <clears throat> who, uh, you know, living in the era of, um, you know, a kind of era of rapacious capitalism in the United States, they said, well, you know, we don't, we don't, you know, America is a, a constantly subject to a lot of intense political debate. There's anarchist and communist movements. And one way of, making sure that the whole system hold, you know, holds together is by spending lots of private money to support scientific research because scientific research can introduce piecemeal reforms that are an alternative, for example, to um, not just communist uh, governance, uh, but even kind of more social collectivist style thinking that you might find in France, right? So there's these famous distinctions between you know, United States and England being more interested in concepts of individual liberty that are based on, um, uh, you know, individual action, whereas, uh, you know, you'd say, you could also say negative liberty and, you know, France being more interested in collective systems of uh thinking through society and politics and so on. And as soon as you have the United States driven by this philanthropic model that's really privileging um, funding individuals to do innovative research, to reform society without challenging political structures too much, it lays the groundwork for something like communication science, computing, information theory, to offer some kind of impersonal technical fix to social inequality. Right. You can talk about, for example, like this, this is a, a, a well-known example. In the 50s and 60s, people interested in cybernetics in the United States will talk about like, like racial strife, racial inequality in terms of disequilibrium in American society, as if it was a kind of impersonal problem that could be adjusted with the proper flows, rather than naming it as kind of political conflict with deeply social origins that aren't, you know, especially technical. Um and so telling the story of how and why Robin Barons promote scholars engaging with this impersonal, technical, expert-oriented solutions and research, telling that story helps explain the, some peculiar features to its not only its emergence, but also its trans, transformation in post-war France of the 50s and 60s, where cybernetics becomes a little bit more a creature 
of, um, how would you describe it? A little more creature of, you know, innovative researchers at public universities thinking about, um, you know, thinking about how to kind of modernize, uh, modernize social sciences in a way that is attentive to collective relations, that's responsive to problems of decolonization and so on. And, you know, another theme in the book is also these Robert Barron philanthropies, they try for decades to implement or inculcate these same values in France. And they always, um, they always stumble a little bit because French models of academic and scientific inquiry are just not based on individual uh, initiative of researchers coming up with their own little paradigm. It's, it's, it's a little more of a, um, it's, it's a bit more of a social and collective uh, enterprise, not exactly entrepreneurial in the way American science is. Oh, okay. Um, that is really interesting how the um, French model is maybe not as individualistic. I noticed that, for example, when you see PhD positions uh, advertised in Europe, it's often as a part of a collaboration, right, um, in France too. Um, and and also- uh, oh, sorry. Well, and also, if you look at, um, uh, to think of a good example, so like, uh, you know, these researchers, so like Claude Levi-Strauss, who, you know, ostensibly founds the structuralist movement in, you know, 1950s France. Um, he spent much of his career as, you know, um, you know, he consulted, like he worked as the uh, kind of attache and employee at the French embassy in New York City in the 1940s. The 1950s, he was a consultant for UNESCO. Um, you know, and that's that kind of expertise is a little bit different uh, being a, a functionary for NGOs in the state. That's very different than, you know, than, for example, Norbert Wiener, it wasn't his main bag, but Norbert Wiener, the so-called American founder of cybernetics, no, he was he didn't he didn't love doing industrial research, but you know he would consult sometimes with corporations. Uh, MIT, of course, is a you know famous culture and history of spinoffs, um, and so in that you have a different model of kind of inventing the future as opposed to a French model that's a little bit more attached to civil service, and within that ideas of technical and systemic thinking have uh, different inflections. They're not unrelated. They work well together in interesting ways together, but you can sort of explain what's happening in the U S or what's happening in France, or for that matter, what's happening in, you know, uh, even the, the, the Austro-Hungarian empire uh, or, or Soviet union, because all these scholars circulate pretty broadly and widely. You can start explaining one system by th- looking at the different contexts for the reception and development of new ideas about structuralism, cybernetics, information theory, and so on. Yeah, thank you. And um, when it comes to the uh, this like transnational collaborations, uh, as you mentioned, Claude Levi-Strauss, for example, spent um, a lot of time in the New World and the, in the U.S. Um, something that I find interesting is that um, French theory, you know, eventually comes to the U.S. Um, it's seen as like this, like... Um, foreign uh, body of knowledge of approaches, but it was shaped by stuff that was happening in the U.S. as well. Um, 
I know there's been plenty of research about the implication of like colonial French theory. Um, so I was wondering if you could speak more about this, like um, kind of going back and forth between the U.S. and France uh, when it comes to the theory. Yeah, yeah, gladly. Um, so in a way, you know, one one thrust of the book, and this this follows on a lot of other thinkers, Lydia Liu, um, Ronan LaRue in, in, in France. Um, uh, so one thrust of the book is basically to see how, what we tend to think of as particular national systems of thought, American or French or, you know, U.S. American or French, um, uh, are f- actually at their roots global, planetary, and transnational. Um, so, you know, the story I tell about the history of, you know, of French theory, so-called French theory, is that, okay, well, you know, the many of the major founders and thinkers in so-called French theory, um, but, you know, most notably Claude Levi-Strauss, um, you know, I look a lot at his experience in the, in the United States in the 1940s, uh, to a lesser extent, his work in Brazil in the 1930s, and how you know he was he was a he was a fluent masterful english speaker um he did much of his writing in english he admired and absorbed albeit also transformed uh ethnography in the english speaking world you know and he even consulted with kind of the oss a predecessor uh to the you know cia in the united states to advise them on policy in latin america policy in um in Europe. So this was, this guy was in a way French, but he was deeply shaped and formed through his American encounters. Um, at the same time, and so far as he adapted all of these ideas out of cybernetics, well, the cybernetics movement, um, it was, it was largely shaped by colonial ethnographers such as Gregory Bateson, who himself was British and spent much of much, much of his career in Southeast Asia and the Pacific Margaret Mead, who was also, she was American, but again, a colonial ethnographer. Um, These were highly, highly, highly worldly people. So even at cybernetics itself, to define it as an American problem is a little bit, or American development is, it's a little, um, it's misleading because so many of the participants in the movement were worldly cosmopolitan people who were horrified by colonialism. They were horrified by genocide. They felt some responsibility um, to respond to these problems. So, you know, they develop ideas that become cybernetics. Those end up shaping people like the Russian linguist Roman Jakobson and the French anthropologist Claude Lévy-Strauss, who impact people like Roland Barthes or Yulia Kristeva that then circled back to the United States in the 1970s and 1980s under, under the name of French theory. But this French theory is itself a completely polyglot, multicultural uh, formation that, you know, its core members are frequently not French in any simple manner. And the manners in which they defined their theory was almost, not inevitably, but with, with an awful lot of uh, consistency, directly or indirectly reference to problems of the French empire, French decolonization, which throws in a whole other set of linguistic and national identities. And so in a way, I'm trying to make things messy. You know, I'm trying to say French theory is American, 
so-called American theories are developed against the backdrop of, you know, global expansion and global empire. And out of that, we can find French and American themes, but those French and American themes are part of a larger, uh, you know, patchwork of, you know, planetary problems and tensions. Yes, I think I really appreciate this, um, you know, kind of unpacking of how theories, uh, neither French nor American, it reminds me a lot of like um, contemporary debates um, in both sides of the Atlantic, but I think especially in France right now when it comes to, um, there's this thing they call le wokisme, right? So wokeism, where they think like some of these ideas about the intersectionality and race and gender uh, come from the U.S., from Anglo-Saxon countries, and I think it's way more uh, complicated than that. So like assigning a nationality to like a um, specific approaches is very dishonest. Um, so I, I think I, I really appreciated that, you know, the um, yeah. unpacking. Yeah. I mean, that was, you know, just to, to, like, I mean, I think that's like a really, it's those types of debates. They're really beautiful, like a beautiful example of what I'm talking about. Um. Right. So to me, if I'm interested, if I'm interested in thinking questions, let's just take gender. Right. If I'm interested in, you know, thinking in a complex manner about gender, that gender itself is not a simple, mere biological fact. Right. But it's a complicated set of performances and interrelations. Um, so, you know, obviously one of the one of the great theorists of this who's completely at the backdrop of American thinkers like Judith Butler is Cloud Levi-Strauss, right? So Cloud Levi-Strauss's early interventions in anthropology are all around kinship. And he's very, very quick in his rethinking of kinship. Okay, he makes it clear, you know, the elementary structures of uh, uh, kinship that he writes in the late 40s, he makes it clear that a lot of it is a commentary on Anglo-American ethnographic research. And towards the end of the book, he starts suggesting this is, he does, in the last chapter of the book, he says, this is a problem partially of communication. He says kinship is about the way, for example, and this is a controversial idea that I'm not endorsing, but I'm, you know, it's worth laying out. He says kinship is a problem of the circulation, of the communication of partners, and particularly women, within a particular society. And then out of that, across the 50s, in reference to cybernetics, communication theory, game theory, all these weird American ideas, he starts saying, okay, actually, the more we look at it, the more kinship or race or the definition of an ethnic group, they all are these problems of structure and communication where he's poaching these ideas from American engineering research. But it's, and then, you know, so on one hand, already, this critical thinking of gender that flourishes in the United States in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, it's deeply indebted to people like uh, Cloud Levi-Strauss. And then Cloud Levi-Strauss, um, you know, he's, he's, he's in dialogue with American ideas, certainly. But you can't say that this rethinking of gender was, you know, you can't say in any simple way these things come from the United States. A lot of times, they, but they do come from transnational and transdisciplinary flows and confrontations. And then bit by bit, we sort of forget about these flows. And then a text from the United States gets popular in France. And they say, oh, look at this horrible influence American academics have on French thought or vice versa with the so-called kind of theory debates in the 80s and 90s in the US when everyone was upset about Foucault and Derrida. And that's just... 
it's a it's, it's like it's a it's a wildly jingoistic naive notion to think of that there's this inside and outside when actually you know all of these systems are bouncing off one another and giving rise to one another in highly complex manners that don't even you know when someone like Cloud Louis Strauss is using cybernetics to explain to rethink what gender is um it's a complex politics. It, and it's, it, it's certainly not a, a simple leftism or wokeism, but the history of these ideas to me is, I don't know, it's, it's fascinating because the, the truth is so weird. You can, almost can't even believe where some of these ideas come from and how they come about. And at the same time, you can also be astonished by some of the importance of their suggestions, you know? Yes, yes, for sure. Um, I wanted to also, um, when it comes to like uh, assigning like nationalities to this series, wanted to go back to the role maybe of like indigenous knowledge and uh, the colonial establishment in creating this series. And um, maybe this is a little uh, tangential to what we were talking about before, but I was wondering about the archival um, uh, stuff that you found out when you were studying, like, for example, Margaret Mead and Gregory Bateson, like the way they were conducting research. Uh, what was it like to like look closely at um you know just how they were uh conducting research in uh Indonesia for example um fascinating um it's always fascinating so there's a there's a couple of things that are kind of interesting to me um okay one thing i was so people talk about cybernetics as coming out of uh, you know world war 2 military laboratories largely run by the United States. But, you know, the actual cybernetics group, you know, it started taking shape in the early 40s, largely in connection with Meade and Bateson, not exclusively, but they were involved in the the meetings and conferences that became the cybernetics groups years before, you know, Norbert Wiener, the mathematician who's so-called founder of cybernetics, got involved with the groups. And the thing was their interest in weird interdisciplinary media driven research came out of colonial ethnography where they had thought techniques like film and magnetic recording could help explain cultural systems. And they really approached their research in sites like Bali as if it were a kind of big data exercise. They shot uh, tens of thousands of feet of film, uh, you know, motion picture film. They took additional, you know, 20, 30, 40, I think 20 or 30,000 photos uh, of indigenous life in Bali. Um, And the notion that we're going to have some trace of culture that's revealed in these, you know, in all this media that can be scanned and searched and correlated, and even at some point maybe mathematized, uh, where uh, out of that we'll have a new way of understanding societies that is verified by technology, but... The idea is, the conceit is, you could also call it the ruse, um, you know, ostensibly comes from indigenous cultures themselves. That was the idea. Um, obviously, there are a lot of reasons why shooting a film in a colony that does not give you an objective, impartial re- vision of indigenous life. Uh, it matters who shoots the film. It matters what they shoot. It matters that the that the tribes under consideration are already in a way enclosed by colonialism. All of those are really, really big factors. Um, but it's 
you know, it's kind of fascinating to look at Mead and Bateson as people who thought they were at the cutting edge of new media research in the 30s and 40s. Their practices don't necessarily lead to a new science of culture uh, like they expect, but it helps, it ends up providing lots of major important suggestions how to mathematicians, to engineers, to computer scientists in the 40s and 50s when they start trying to figure out what their computers do. They start thinking, oh, these these systems and logics in the machine, maybe like Mead and Bateson said, and like Levi Strauss will say, well, maybe they reflect systems and logics that we can see in pure form in indigenous culture. That's wildly problematic. You know, it's wildly problematic to suggest that there's some pure logic on display in machines in indigenous culture. Um, so, you know, I don't, I, you know, I don't say that as a way to endorse the idea, but you know, once you once you look at that origins to early thinking about computing, you start getting another story like, oh, this interdisciplinarity is not just engineering ideas inspiring, you know, those of us in the soft sciences. It's also the story of scientists and engineers and mathematicians who are getting lots and lots of money from private foundations looking to better understand the social and political and human significance of their technology. Like no one really knows what these technologies are. And, you know, it's kind of whispering in their ear are colonial ethnographers, people whose research has all of the complexities, all of the compromises, and, you know, that one would expect from research done by, uh, you know, people working for a colonial government or with the approval of the colonial government. Um, And yet, nonetheless, there are also researchers who think indigenous people deserve total respect for having as developed and rich and rational a method of thinking as people do in the United States, albeit in a different form. And when those people are shaping the thinking of mathematicians and engineers, then you're like, oh, this is a really complex interdisciplinarity. It's not just a simple story of technological invention. It's not a story of the mathematicians and engineers influencing the human sciences. It's more of this crazy mixed up story where suddenly observations made under problematic conditions in Bali are forming suggestions to foundation officers in the 1940s to fund researchers like mathematicians to get together and to rethink new forms of social science informed by computing because of some promise that was coming out of photographs of Bali. Like this is like, that's like a totally bizarre story. And a lot of, a lot of the book is, you know, there are books that are all about very simple formulas that explain where something comes from. This book was a little more about, wildly messy relationships and saying that's how disciplines that's how science that's how technology take shape and let's look at the complex global planetary mess of you know collisions that finally give rise to these highly refined things like information theory french theory semiotics and so on um yeah, no, I, I think the narrative is uh, extremely fascinating. Um, you know, the archaeology of knowledge, how the series are um, assumed to come from a specific environment that's more like a scholarly, but in fact, it's uh, way more complex than that. Um, I wanted to thank you, uh, you know, for so far for all your responses. And uh, I guess uh, just one last question that I had for you was if you had any future directions that um, you could take this with this book uh, or maybe like if it has inspired you to look into other things. Um, Well, here's what I would say. Uh, So I have I have other projects that are taking shape. I'm not going to but they they, some of them are they're starting in different places. 
But, you know, this question of indigenous knowledge, indigenous culture, I think is really important uh, because uh, like I've tried to kind of reorient histories of computing, histories of cybernetics away from this conflict, for example, between the United States and the Axis in Europe so that we start taking it, you know, taking note of what's happening in, say, Bali or even Brazil. Right. Nonetheless, um, the story I tell and the history I tell is almost entirely told by, you know, white European, white Western anthropologists, scientists, and so on. And, you know, I think there's, I think there's probably ways where if, if one digs into the history of cybernetics, um, you know, I think there probably, I think there probably are versions of this story that would take seriously the manner in which there are war and you know indigenous practices for example in bali which even under the conditions of colonialism made major suggestions to how people like mead and bateson came on to interpret cybernetics to do to tell that story though you know you need you know one would need to go a lot deeper into the archive and not just get bateson and mead's accounts um you know so although that although some of that work is out there um I mean, I think this is really just like a very, very first step in kind of uh, taking some of the histories of cybernetics and computing away from a very narrow emphasis on kind of U.S.-centric scientific perspectives. But, you know, I sort of hope that the that this is, will kind of become a first history towards a new kind of global history of cybernetics that starts looking... Uh, looking at new ways that these encounters many cyberneticians had around the world in a manner that better captures the agency, the suggestion, the innovation, and you know ideas that come out of non-Western context, but then get picked up and circulated in new ways at places like MIT or even in semiotics in Paris in the, in the 1950s or 60s. I think that's a a big future direction, but this book is, you know, more allusions towards that, that history than, uh, you know, a, a realization of it. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm certainly excited to see, um, you know, what, uh, future research comes out, um, that like, um, you know, renders this narratives about theory more complex than what they are. And I, uh, really appreciated, um, your work, um, uh, because of that as well. Thanks. Well, um, yeah, I wanted to uh, maybe finish here and thank you again so much for uh, coming and talking to me. Cool. Well, I really, I really enjoyed this. Thanks, thanks for your time and you know your careful reading of the book. <laughs>